Bible reading this morning is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there, he went towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. In Hebrews uh, chapter 11, there's a great hall of fame of the great ones from the Old Testament. We've got people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Isaac and Joseph, Moses, Rahab and a host of others. But the the one that actually dominates the chapter is Abraham. Uh, You read in chapter 11 of Hebrews verses 8 to 10 this description of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Hebrews chapter 11, what we have is a giant among believers, right? An extraordinary man. And yet, this giant among believers has pretty 
big clay feet. And you would have picked it up as we went through Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Abraham, when you read through Genesis 12, is unlikely to receive a nomination for husband of the year. All right? Let me read you again, remind you of exactly what happened. There's a famine in Canaan, promised land. He's gone to the promised land. And so he decides to take his family to Egypt or his uh, extended family to Egypt so they can survive. Chapter 12, verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me and I'll let you live. Say you're my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. It's not all that commit. Who would want a boyfriend or a husband who does that to you? Imagine I'm out with Sue sitting down at a restaurant and this beautiful 35-year-old woman comes in across the room. I obviously know her and I say, Hi, Jane, great to see you. This is and point to Sue and go, a friend of mine, Sue, right? <laughs> right this is not, doesn't augur well for a healthy relationship into the future. Um, but in a sense, that's exactly what Abraham does here, doesn't he? He is threatened and so he becomes selfish, manipulative and gutless. <laughs> that's the basic line, isn't it? So let me ask you this question. Abraham, the great man of faith, Hebrews chapter 11 Abraham, the gutless worm, Genesis chapter 12. Um, is Abraham an example for us to follow? Yes and no, right? <laughs> like we have, like he's, he's, a, he's a mixture like all of us, isn't he? You know, a great mixture. If you take Abraham as your case study on how to live the Christian life, if that's the way you seem as a blueprint to follow, you pick up clues on how to run things, then the danger is that you, you start to read the Bible uh, through a very self-focused lens. You, you see everything in terms of a lesson you personally need to learn. And you could do that in different ways with Abraham, and it could lead to some disastrous consequences. You know, like you're trying to work out, should I uh, uh, take up a new job or move into state for a new job? Okay. Go to Genesis chapter 12 and listen for the voice of God telling you to go somewhere. Uh, you're having trouble as a family conceiving and having children. Well, Genesis chapter 12 to 25, okay, God promises children to childless couples. Probably not. Uh, you're feeling like throttling your children, right, and doing them harm. We go to Genesis chapter 22, right, where God takes... Uh, where Abraham takes Isaac up onto a mountain and he's instructed to kill him with a knife. And then God intervenes so he doesn't kill him. God, please save me from killing my kids. You know, uh, you know like, where do you go with some of those sort of incidents in his life? The better question always when you come to the Bible, but particularly this part of the Bible, is to ask the question, how does Abram or Abraham, how does he fit into the plan of God? What is God's purpose here and how do we fit into his plan? Not as how does God serve us according to our plans. What I'm going to do with you for just a few moments, and you've got an outline in front of you or in the leaflet you received as you came in. I want to give you some background. Talk about Abraham and how he fits into the crossroads of God's promises. So it's a critical turning point. Then 
What I'm going to do is talk about uh, Abraham's faith in God. Uh, what does that look like? And then I'm going to talk at the end about how uh, God's promises to Abraham are referred to in the New Testament as the gospel preached beforehand. That is, even though he comes over a thousand years before Jesus, it's a signalling of God's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, both for Abraham and for us. And I'm going to try and wrap that together. All right, so let's uh, look at this together, look at some of the background or the way in which Abraham is at the crossroads in God's promises. The back, background of Genesis chapter 12 is not complicated because there's only been 11 chapters of the Bible so far. Okay, so we, uh, it's not a, not a difficult thing, but let me just review them quickly because... Um, What we have with Abraham's call in Genesis chapter 12 is God's initiative in the face of a mess, (laughs) a great great disastrous mess. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 set up the storyline of the Bible. God creates and he creates it good, right? He creates the world, he creates people, and he creates us for relationship with himself. And the refrain in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis is, is, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Every time God creates. You get to Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve in the garden reject the authority of God. Uh, They they sin, they disobey and they're expelled from the garden. This rejection of God has consequences. Broken relationship with God, mucked up relationships between people and complications when it comes to living in a world that experiences sin. There are weeds in your garden. You know, there's that sort of idea. When you go from Genesis uh, 4 through to Genesis chapter 11, what you have is this sort of um, acceleration of sin or rebellion against God, uh, although it goes downhill, if that makes sense. So chapters uh, 4 and 5, we have Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills his brother Abel, and he um, is a murderer who is dealt with by God. He's preserved alive, uh, but nonetheless we have this... this inter-family destruction that's going on. You get to chapters 6 to 9, that's all to do with Noah and the flood. Uh, God sees the sinfulness of humanity and determines to wipe out uh, everything under the face of the sun, except for Noah and a few people and some of the created animals with him. You get to chapters 10 and 11, and you have people who've survived post-flood uniting to build a tower. Uh, It's not a monument to themselves so much as a tower to exclude God from the pictures. They build to the heavens so they can rule instead of God ruling. That's the picture. And God destroys the tower, uh, scatters the people with different languages across the face of the planet. At each point in these, these moments, Cain and Abel and the flood, uh, you get, and even with um, Adam and Eve, you get God both judging but also having mercy providing for the people who sinned at each point. When you get to Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel, God doesn't speak into the situation. And so at that point you're left wondering, is this it? And when you see the storyline to that point in time, you're inclined to think, okay, God, what you should do is nuke them, right, and start again on some other planet, right? These guys have used up your patience. Let's begin again. And what you have in Genesis chapter 11 is a genealogy, a family tree that emerges out of the Tower of Babel. 
I want you to note one thing from this genealogy in chapter 11, verse 30. Uh, so we have, this is the, the family tree that sets up Abraham in chapter 12. We're told that he's married to Sarah, or Sarah. But chapter 11, verse 30 tells us that Sarah is barren. That is, she's not able to have any children. Remember, uh, back at the start of Genesis, we have a God who creates. Uh, he keeps on saying it's good, it's very good. He speaks and creation comes into existence from nothing. When you get to chapter 12, there's a promise about a family line that comes after Abraham. But in chapter 11, you've been told that his wife cannot have children. So if there's to be a future, the God who speaks and creates from nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 needs to speak again and create a child from nothingness. That's the story that we're being told. We get to chapter 12, verse 1. Abraham is instructed by God, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I'll show you. Then we have these series of promises. Verse 2 of chapter 12. I'll bless you. That is, God says, I'll protect and care for you. In, in verse 1 and verses 5 to 7, He's told that he'll be provided with land. He'll have a home that's made secure where he can enjoy those sort of Garden of Eden blessings that have been left behind. There's the promise of descendants, children. Verse 2, I'll make you into a great nation. But remember, Sarah's barren. This is not a possibility at this point. And then, verse 3, we're told, God says, I will bless the world through you a world that sits under my judgment, that rightly deserves my wrath, I'm going to bless this world through you and your descendants. So you get to chapter 12 after this disaster unfolding in chapters 1 to 11, and you're feeling uh, hopeful. You know, this, is the, this is the light in a dark place. And it's, it's starting to look good. You get to verse 4, and we're told that Abraham goes with his household. He leaves the security of home. He leaves what he knows, and he goes to a place he has never been, all based on a promise from God. Verse 6, we're told that Abraham actually travels throughout this land that's been promised. It's as if he's scoping it out. And in verses 7 to 8, we're told that he erects an altar at Shechem, an altar at Bethel as well. It's as if he's going around the boundaries and establishes these worshipping centres. And what he's doing is he's saying, God, this is your land and I dedicate it to you and I will serve you in this land. It's, it's actually looking really good until you get to verse 10. Abraham, this great man of faith, there's a famine in the land, verse 10. Now remember, this is the land that God has promised to Abraham. What sort of God has made this promise? He is the God who created the whole universe out of nothing. So when the God who creates out of nothing takes you to a land that he's promised to give you, can this God who speaks and creates from his word, can he provide food? Duh. And of course he can. Do you know what I mean? So why does Abraham leave? He doesn't trust the creator God. 
Uh, he tries to provide for himself. And then it gets worse. Verse 11. Say, he says to Sarah, say you are my sister. Now at this point, he is a true descendant of Adam. Right, he is a man who turns his back on his wife. Pharaoh likes the look of Abraham's sister and takes her for a wife. And then we read the consequence of that in verse 17. The Lord inflicts serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. Pharaoh taps into what's going on. He picks up what's happening and summons Abraham to a meeting. And he says to him, What, what have you done to me? What have you done? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? And if we've been reading carefully through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we would hear in Pharaoh's words echoes of phrases that have already come up a few times. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, Adam and Eve in the garden are rebelling against God, and God says to the woman in the garden, What have you done? What have you done? We get to chapter 4, verse 10. Cain has murdered Abel. And God says to Cain, What have you done? What have you done? And now we get Pharaoh here with the man of God. And he says to Abraham, What have you done? Remember, this is the worshipper of foreign gods saying to the man who's been called by the true and living God, what have you done? <laughs> you see, Pharaoh at this point is acting with more integrity than Abraham. And then in verse 19, this is what Pharaoh says to Abraham. He says, now then, here's your wife, take her and go. It actually sounds quite polite there, doesn't it? You know, Abraham, here's your wife, take her. And go, you know, quite polite. In fact, the, the language has been smoothed out for us in the translation. Uh, the, the scholars of the original language say it should read more like this, right? Much more clipped. Uh, Pharaoh approached Abraham and said, Here, wife, take, go. <laughs> you need to pick up there's that restrained sort of, Ooh, it's all I can do from throttling you sort of feeling, you know. Here, wife, take, go. But here's the question I've got. Remember back at the, the start of chapter 12, one of the promises is that Abraham will be a blessing to the whole world. Right? He'll be a blessing to everybody. And here we have Abraham. And he is a curse to Pharaoh. He's dumped Pharaoh right in the middle of it. And Pharaoh at this point wants nothing to do with Abraham or his God. He just wants as much distance as he can possibly get. So, come back to the um, question I started with. Abraham, an example of how to trust God or a dirtbag? Well, he's sort of both really, isn't he? You know? As you see it unfolding here. But what we are discovering 
is much more about the God who is committed to bless than we are about the faithfulness of Abraham. And we need to read this this way because ultimately this section of the Bible, actually as is most sections of the Bible, is really much more about the way in which God fulfills his commitment to bless people than it is about the faithfulness of people themselves. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, this is how Paul the Apostle reflects on these promises made to Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. Quoting from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So how does this good news about Jesus, how does it somehow get announced, you know, 1,500 years beforehand to Abraham? In what sense is there a connection between these two things? How does it work? I want to pick up on just three aspects, three aspects of it as we try and see the connections between Abraham, Jesus and us. Okay, firstly... What it does, this incident in Genesis chapter 12, is it highlights the mercy and the grace of God. So step back for a moment. We had the call of Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1. Why does God choose Abraham? Why does does God determine that Abraham will be the one that he's going to work through? Is it because he's, you know, a head taller than anyone else on the planet? Is it because he's got a really big brain? and can, you know, work things out very quickly? Is it because he's faster and can outrun his enemies? Is it, you know... Why does God choose Abraham? In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, you don't need to look it up, but there's a comment made about Terah, who is Abraham's father. What we're told there in Joshua 24, verse 2, is that Terah was one who served other gods. Terah is mentioned back in Genesis 11 verse 27. Do you understand what we're being told there? And in fact, what we're to presume from Genesis chapter 11 is that Terah and Abraham, that is that family tree, they're all worshippers of foreign gods. So why does God choose Abraham, a worshipper of a foreign god? God's plan is to bless the whole world through this one man, through his descendants. Why choose a man who has a wife who can't conceive? Right? What, what, what is God thinking? You know, really? Like he's supposed to be clever, isn't he? Uh, but his selection process leaves something to be desired. Ten verses into Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, the great hope of the whole planet, uh, just trashes his wife without giving it a second thought. Great choice, God, you know. But you see, isn't that the point? Isn't that always the point? That when God chooses, he's not doing it because he thinks Abraham or you or I are such wonderful projects that will advance his kingdom. Do you understand the qualification for Abraham's 
being chosen at this point is the fact that he is a ratbag. That's the only thing he does to qualify. That's always the case. If you have a relationship with God, it's because you qualified by being a ratbag. That's the only reason you have a relationship with God. Let me remind you what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while you were still attractive, not while you were still you know, trying to do good things to impress God, not, 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 not. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, if you have a relationship with God, it is only because of God's grace and kindness towards you. It's only because he sent his son to die on a cross for you so you could be forgiven and called a child of God. Abraham's God is our God. A God who is merciful and gracious and who out of his kindness chooses people like you and me. Just this week I was talking to someone who had been trying to share with their elderly aunt, a woman in her 80s, uh, this truth from the Bible. That... We can only have a relationship with God because of what God has done for us in Christ on the cross. And tackled the question from all sorts of different angles. But this aging aunt in her 80s, all she could come back to time and time again was, I think God will be pretty happy with the way in which I've lived my life. I've tried to live a pretty good life. Back to the cross. But I've tried to live a pretty good... Back to the cross. And there was just this, this gulf of understanding between the fact that you're only ever in relationship with God based on his grace and mercy and kindness, never because of what you do. And we are privileged. Once you're in that relationship, you have privileged standing and you want to live for him, but not to establish the relationship, but as a result of being in relationship. Abraham's God is our God. Merciful, kind, gracious. Second thing is, how are these promises to Abraham, how are they fulfilled in Christ? Remember, it's, um, uh, it talks about the way in which the gospel was preached beforehand. Abraham received amazing promises, but quite honestly, he didn't see much much result for them. You remember what the promises were, descendants? By the time Abraham dies, when you get into you know, Genesis 25 or thereabouts, uh, he, he effectively, in terms of the storyline of the Bible, has one descendant, right? one child, Isaac. Not exactly descendants like the sands on the seashore. Blessing. Remember, used to be a blessing for the whole world. By the time he dies, he's independently wealthy. But he hasn't actually blessed anyone, really. He's, he's done okay for himself. What about the land? Well, he's gone into the land, he's seen it, he's built altars, but at the time of his death, he doesn't control it. In fact, at the time of his death, he owns one piece of land in the promised land, just one. Do you know what it was? 
It was the burial plot for himself and his wife. That was it. That was his toehold in the promised land at that point. But he trusted that God would deliver on his promises even though he hadn't yet seen how that would happen. Abraham himself, he can't rescue the human race, but one of his descendants does. If you went to um, the start of Matthew's Gospel, uh, which traces Jesus' family tree line, it starts with Jesus, goes back to King David, and then back to Abraham. And the point's really clear. It's saying that through Abraham, God has blessed through the descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, and fulfilled his promises in that way. And the good news about Jesus has spread throughout the whole world. Uh, missiologists, uh, experts in how the, the gospel spreads across the planet, and they tell me that uh, in the time, just the time I've been preaching, right, 20,000 people across the globe have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that extraordinary? That's not because I've been exceptionally long at this point, you know, but, uh, uh, but that is the reality. That God is doing his work of blessing many people across many places on the face of the planet. We're blessed in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have the hope of heaven that's been secured for us. A hope that Abraham looked towards. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says that. Abraham looked forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The hope. But for now, friends, just like Abraham, we're called to live by faith in the promises of God. That's our situation. Abraham was called by God, away from family, away from friends, away from everything he knew. On what basis? What guarantees did God give him? They gave him a word. He promised that he would keep his word. I take it that's exactly our situation. Like Abraham, we're, we're tempted to doubt the promise of God's word. We're tempted to actually put our hope in a whole lot of other stuff rather than in God himself. Put our trust in ourselves to secure our future, uh, to store up enough resources to cover ourselves into the indefinite future. To, there are all sorts of ways we should put our trust and our hope in things other than the word of God. Like Abraham, actually, we're, we're tempted to put our trust in this world that God's created rather than put our trust in him and his eternal promises. This really, um, this really came home to me just a couple of months ago, the stark reality. Some of you know our, we've got a gospel partner called Steph who's been serving in Central Asia. She's uh, come back on furlough from uh, Central Asia at the end of last year and been diagnosed with bowel cancer. Initially, they thought that probably would be fairly easily treated, but it's an exceptionally aggressive form, and uh, it's processed to the point, even with the best of medical intervention, they're saying she probably has between 6 and 12 months to live, but it could be any time. So here she is, she's 34 years of age now, and looking like she's going to die, this woman who has served Jesus by going to Central Asia um, 
Sue and I had the chance to catch up with her at her bedside before she had a major operation a little while ago. And she wasn't quite sure how it was going to unfold at that point. She said her deep desire was to go back to Central Asia. So she was praying that God would heal her. And then she explained why. She had a driver back in Central Asia who contracted cancer. And he died. She's come back to, to Australia. She's contracted cancer. And she's receiving the best medical treatment on the face of the planet. But she said, you know the difference between my driver and me? It's not that I'm a first world person with the best medical treatment and he could afford nothing and therefore just died. It is the fact that he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ and died without hope. And I have sure, safe and certain hope. So that whether I live or whether I die, I am secure for all eternity in him. I thought, here is a woman who has starkly and clearly understood the promises of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that has had impact on the way she thinks, where her trust is, where her hope is. Friends, we're just like Abraham in all sorts of different ways. We're people who've received the blessings of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of hope and glory. We're people who've been forgiven, even though we're, we're sinners who reject God. And we have wonderful privileged status because we're children. And we're people who are meant to live by faith in the promises of God and not have our hearts tethered to this world and the things of this world. Abraham, great man of faith. Well, he has a great God, the same God that we have. So let's pray to him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonderful promise to, promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've been amazingly gracious to us. We know we don't deserve relationship with you. We only have it because of your privileged generosity to us. But Father, we pray we'll, we'll live with that knowledge, see it into our minds and hearts, that we'll live with confident hope as we look to the future not based on our own performance, not based on how we've been able to provide for ourselves, but rather based on the fact that you have made promises to us in your Son that are secure for all eternity in him. Help us to live by trust in those promises and to live in line with them. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.